What is up, designers, and welcome to the Grand Design Podcast. Uh, my name is Dallas Prater, and um, you know, uh, to get kind of started out of the gate, um, this podcast is for the dreamers. Okay, this podcast for the people who maybe right now uh, label themselves something as you know a creative or a visionary or an entrepreneur. You know, this podcast is for the people who, you know, you have a vision for the way your lifetime and the path that you walk in this lifetime will impact the world. You know, you see things beyond the way they are. You want to change a generation. You want to change a system because you have a vision that's drastically different from what it is currently. That's what this podcast is for. And this first few series of episodes is going to. Excuse me. It's going to be all geared towards people who have a vision for changing the world, but are stuck in their movement to achieving that vision. Okay. And so with the onset of this podcast, you probably don't know. This is the Grand Design Podcast, if I haven't mentioned. You probably don't know what the, you know, what the heck a Grand Design is. You probably don't know who the designers are, but uh, you're going to learn as this podcast goes on. And uh, to kind of get straight away into explaining, I want to start um, this podcast with a, a Steve Jobs quote because I, I kind of feel like it rains, you know, it rains in the point in initiation very well. Okay, uh, I got to scroll through my Google thing because I didn't prepare for some odd reason and actually bring the quote up. But here it is. Here it is. Okay, this is a Steve Jobs quote. And I'm, you know, not me. I'm not, I'm not that brilliant. It says, here's to the crazy ones, the misfits the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs in the square holes, the ones who see things differently. They're not fond of rules. You can quote them, disagree with them, glorify or vilify them. But the only thing you can't do is ignore them because they change things. They push the human race forward. And while some may see them as crazy as the crazy ones, we see genius because the ones who are crazy enough to think that they can change the world are the ones who do. And so if you've ever heard this quote or if you're just hearing it for the first time and you're thinking, okay, that's me, that's me, then this podcast is all for you. And uh, it's geared to engage you and help you in reaching that opportunity. Now, I'm not the foremost expert of how to do that or anything like that, but, you know, I can relate to it. And so some of the things I'm experiencing, I think, can be a guiding factor for people who are not as far along as I am in this journey. And I'm not far along at all, but. You know, still, because there are crazy ones, the misfits, they're rebels, they're troublemakers, they're round pegs and square holes. The one who see the, you know, people who see things differently, people who are not fond of rules, who see an image of society that is perfect. But, you know, where it ends, it says enough to, you know, the ones who are crazy enough to think that they can change the world are the ones who do. These people, uh, Maybe because of where they are in life are lacking clarity on how they can reach that part of the, you know, the quote, the part where you actually change the world, the part where you actually make impact, the part where you actually make mass movements. OK, because there are a lot of not, not a lot of information, you know, out there to define it, you know, and, you know, I, I, I you know, this podcast, you know, it's made because I, I understand how it is to be one of these people to feel like you don't relate to the people around you. To feel like a you know, like you're alone and the only person in the entire world, and you don't get why people just live their lives in such a mon- mundane, routine, uninspiring, uneventful, 
un, un, you know, such a conventional square cut out way. And you see and you feel sympathy and you have hope and you have dreams and visions for the way things can be. You know, I'm living in uh, Los Angeles right now, but when I came here for the first time, I was like kind of disappointed, kind of shocked. And the first thing I thought was to tear the city to the ground and build a new one. People feel that conviction to towards the fabric of reality and how it can be altered. The people who are cut differently. Me, personally, I will never vote a day in my life. Never. I will never vote a day in my life. Voting is silly. It, it, it makes no sense at all. I, I never cast a vote. You might as well call me an idiot if I do so. I don't believe in voting. You know? These are some of the symptoms, you know, some, you know, you might think that is an odd thought, but you have your own assortment of odd thoughts as somebody who is a designer, somebody who is different. Okay. Um, my, my, my reasoning behind that is, you know, why would I ever vote if they could just vote me? They say, oh, the voting age is 35 years old. You're not 35 years old yet. I change it if I have to. I'll change every facet of reality if I have to. And I believe in my ability to do so. And a lot of people do, but they're stuck. In the actual tactics and strategies of how to do it, like I said, which is what this four, first four episodes is kind of all about. Um, you know, uh, I'll never work a regular job again. Never. You know, I'll, I'll never step a foot back in traditional school college. They kicked me out, you know, as a freshman because I had a point zero GPA. Not a not a not a not a point zero one. Not a point zero two. I had a point zero GPA. You know. I've lived a lifetime of, you know, feeling kind of a seclusion away from friends and family, isolation, alienation, because our brains are built different. OK, our brains are built different than the rest of society and they can't relate to them. People ask me, do you have schizophrenia? Do you have a psychological order? All these sorts of things. OK. You know, so you relate to this and, and you have a vision for the world. You know, like I said, this podcast is just gauged to and, and primed to help you tear down that vision that's what it's all about okay and so um let me rack my brain a little bit because that was a lot you know i want to say man i'm not a super expert i'm not a super professional i'm not a multimillionaire. i'm not any of these things you know I, I know the coronavirus is fake so i guess i'm you know not fake okay it's a real thing but uh it's, it's scary how much is blown out of proportion like, oh, the corona is coming. It's going to kill it. Just like the election every year. Um, so I guess I'm an expert in some, you know, in some means. But I'm just some guy who went on a long journey and uh, discovered some, some things that I think, you know, people can benefit from. And so in order to illustrate how you can prime a strategy in order to knock down your dream and, you know, begin implementing your vision in reality, I kind of want to. I kind of want to build on that point, you know, by progressing into a little bit of a story. Okay. And I want to tell this story because this story is almost, if you reverse engineer it, a blueprint for you and how you can kind of begin building towards some of the same things that you desire. Does that make sense? So there hasn't been a section of my life where I've fit in conventionally. I say it less you know, less words than I can count on my hands. I can count on my hands how many conversations I had in elementary school, in middle school, and uh, in high school I got a little better. But, you know, I've never related to people. I've never related to society. I always seen things 
drastically different. I always seen a better way the system can go. I never liked being in school. I can never pay attention in class. I never liked doing homework. I was I was a horrible student. Like I am in most systems, because the fact of the matter is, like you, I too feel I don't feel the need to participate in the systems that are, you know, in place today because I can envision things that are far more perfect beyond them. You understand what I'm saying? And so in the inception of things, in the beginning of things, in the genesis, whatever you want to call it, you know, that feeling was the initial thing that I felt that that feeling was the initial, you know, the, you know, a, a, a dominating um what do you say a dominating a dominant emotion a dominant theme a motif that consumed a lot of the early years of my life isolation seclusion and really a non-understanding of why and so i grow older i graduate high school in uh, 2015 i'm pretty young well i was pretty young i don't know if you call me young anymore just turned 23 two days ago (laughs) but (laughs) wow Life sucks. No, that's just that's, that's a joke. But um, you know, I graduate high school. I go to college, and for the first time, when I get to college, you know, I have no, uh, I don't have to play by the rules of society. I'm no longer a minor, and so I kind of go out, you know, to do my own thing. When I first went off to college, which I, which I didn't, I just went to community college around the corner. I was living in a position where I was working at a place down the street from the college called Royal Farms. Uh, my duties there were to mop the floor and uh, cook chicken and uh, do deli service and do register service and stock the freezer. It was a little convenience store that sold chicken. Cool stuff like that. And uh, simultaneously, I was juggling at the juggling, not jugging. That's a completely different word. I was juggling at the same time, like I said, some college work. I had went to college because my parents, you know, wanted me in college. But just like you, I felt a drive, I felt a pulling, I felt a tugging that life was supposed to be more. For some reason, I look around and like I said, I felt alone because I talked to people and interface with people and have conversations with people when they didn't feel that way. But I felt that I was supposed to be more. And I was driven more into that feeling of wanting more through isolation. And so the first dream that I ever had attached to, which had grown with me since 15 years old, and it's a dream I have to this day and a dream that I definitely will accomplish. I wanted to be a rapper. Okay? I wanted to be a rap star. You know? Because when I was younger, when I felt that isolation, the people coming through the speakers would speak to me. They would make me feel differently about the isolation. They would make me feel differently about the seclusion. They would make me feel hope. And in recognizing that these people coming through the speakers made me feel this way, I realized, okay, music can be a conduit to make society feel that way. If all these people are separated from the reality that I live in, the vision that I see, I can make them feel that vision through music. That was a deep, deep, deep down, buried down core desire. Be a huge rap star. I had these dreams. I had these visions, man, of packing out arenas. Millions and millions and millions and millions more people than, you know, because when I have, you know, like, like Steve Jobs said, I'm a tireless idealist. When I see a vision, when I have a vision, when I see something in my mind is greater at a greater magnitude than it's ever been done. It's at a greater magnitude than ever could be done. I would see seas of people packing out outdoor. I, would, I had this man, this dream I would always have, you know, a daydream more of it. 
just standing at a at a you know at a at a like a Coachella stage almost in just seas of people in the sun you know the sunset setting in the background it's, it's nighttime and it's summer and everybody's enjoying it. it's electric it's an environment do you have a dream like that do you have conviction for something like that do you look around you and incorporate people into your dream then you are who I'm talking to you who I'm talking to and who I wake up and feel like every day and so a lot of my life was or a lot of my waking moments a lot of my waking thoughts were based around this dream of be rapper I'm a rapper I want to rap I want to touch millions you see I wanted to win Grammys I said this just a few weeks ago and my god how a lot has changed since then that I was going to win a rap Grammy in every category. And, you know, it's funny, you know, though it's no longer my main motivation, it, it, I, I believe it will come true in every single category in one sitting. You know? Do you feel that way? Think about it. People like Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, they saying we're going to go to a whole other planet. They doing something way harder than I'm doing. That's nothing. You know, what I'm doing is nothing. People aspire to do things and they change generations when they do. But like I said, a lot of us are stuck and we don't know the right vehicle to deliver us to, to, to that impact on society. And this is what this is all about. So just follow along. It's funny. When I first started out, man, rap was the only thing that I cared about. But there was a, 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 a juxtaposition. Uh, I don't know if that's the right word. I'm using words that I don't understand. But there was there was there was a caveat to it. One of the primary reasons behind rap and unbeknownst to me at the time was. You know, when I grew up, you know, I grew up in a, you know, a pretty large family, I guess you would say, you know, I had four other brothers. So it was five of us in total. You know, I had my two parents, you know, and my parents worked very hard. And this is my then perception. OK, now you'll listen if you listen to the end of the story. You know, things have kind of changed. But my then perception as a graduate at 18 years old, man, I was filled of hurt and I was filled with rage because I felt a disconnection and isolation from the society around me. Growing up, I feel like I didn't really interface, didn't really connect, didn't really communicate with the brothers that grew and lived with me. I felt like they didn't see me. You know, like I said, man, people always you know consider me odd. I, you know, people ask, hey, do you have schizophrenia? You have a psychological disorder? You have a personality disorder? You know, and uh, I just didn't feel like it was a real connection there. You know, same with my parents. My parents were always, they worked so hard, man. They were always gone working and grinding and trying to make the best life, you know. But, uh, you know, the moments we did share, the moments we were around, you know, probably even unbeknownst to them. I'd say definitely unbeknownst to them because I don't have a real uh, ability to vocalize the problems that I'm facing. So they couldn't have known. But I never felt like we had a connection. I felt lost in the wind. I felt without love. You know, and that drew that that riveted a hole in me. You know, I listened to all these rappers. I, you know, when I got to high school, I would have a wrestling coach, and I would use these to substitute the love that I was getting. You know, that I, that I felt that I lacked. You know, when I was in high school, I became a very good wrestler. You know, because I didn't want to disappoint my coach, and because every time I won, I noticed that people would cheer and people loved me. That currency was something I craved. And so deep, deep down with this dream of being a global superstar, just like you might be feeling now, it was a deep driving desire to have masses of people that love me, that see me, that recognize me. Because 
living life invisible, living life behind a screen, living life introverted to the point where you can't even order food in a restaurant or, or, or talk to the person next to you like it burned deep, deep down. And so the hidden desire was a longing and aching, you know, just just for recognition, just for love, just for community. You know, yeah, that, that that was that was that was that was the thing that 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 really, you know, I, I probably would have sacrificed everything in the world just to feel like there was a togetherness, just to feel like my parents was proud of me. You know, all these emotions were exacerbated. You know, from the subtle small moments when I was in high school. You know, before I had graduated, when I was a wrestler. Um, you know, uh, we would go to wrestling matches and I really never saw them in the stands. Everybody else had their parents in the stands. Yay, they'd be all happy and whatnot. But not me. You know, my parents had more important things to do. You know, and it took me a while, like I said, in growing. I love my parents very much to understand that. But this was how it felt at the time. The weight of loneliness as a teenager the weight of non-companionship, even the friends that you have, they don't see you. They don't relate to you. They want to go to, they, they want to follow the, the rubric. They want to follow the, the regular script of society. Oh, I want to go to school, get, you know, graduate, marry, get a job, then die. And when I would talk about something different, the conversation would kind of fizzle off and become Ari. You know, when I were, you know, uh, uh, when I would leave school for practice, they'd be getting picked by the parents going, you know, I would go on the bus stop. We didn't have, you know, everything that they had. It was a more rougher time for us. I would go on the bus stop and watch those kids with smiles on their face driving by. They had their own cars. They would drive by and it'd be 28 degrees. It'd be sleeting rain, sleeting snow. And I'd be sitting on the bus stop waiting an hour in the pitch black of winter for a bus to come by that you know, might not even ever come for the, you know, the two, three hours later, you know, um, a lot of life was solo missions. A lot of life was believing in the dream, believing in aspirations, waiting to break out of the cage of high school to get it. And so when I got to college for the first time, you know, and like I said, I was still living at home with my parents, by the way. Um, but when I got to college for the first time, I really felt that freedom. I was like, man, like I'm, 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 I'm an adult. I don't have to be if I don't want to. And so, as you know, as someone with a dream or someone with an idea, you know, the first thing I wanted to do was just okay. I'm just going to make an album and I'm going to make it out of here. I'm going to make it. I'm a rap. I'm going to just do it. You have a dream and you set off on that journey. You're on the onset of that journey, and you want it to happen. You're ready for it to happen. You have everything you need because you're young and naive and you do believe that and you're ready to kick it off. And so. You know, here was my schedule every day. I had, like I said, college and I had, you know, I was working the job on the side at the same time. And so I would wake up 7 a.m. in the morning, let's say, to make it to school by like 9 because I would have to take the bus to the school, middle of winter, freezing cold. I take the bus to school about an hour, 45 minutes, however long it took, and I would wait for class to start. I would go to class from 9 to 12, take the bus home, get home at 2 p.m. because the bus ride sometimes was elongated. I have to wait to the bus. It wasn't a perfect process. Okay. And so I would wait for the bus to come by, get home at 2 p.m. and I had to walk to work. It was an hour walk and I would get there at 3 p.m. when I was scheduled at 2 p.m. Get chewed out by my managers, you know, and I remember walking 
through those alleyways and walking through, you know, it was a long walk to work, a cold walk to work, walking through because I stayed there for two years overall through, through every season. And I'm looking around and, you know, day by day by day by day by day by day, you know, getting older and getting older, growing old in this place. And uh, I would get to work, like I said, at 2 p.m. I worked 2 to 10, maybe 2 to 11, walk an hour home, get home at 12 p.m. And I had school Monday, Wednesdays and Fridays. And so maybe work, they take advantage of that and schedule me the next day at 5 a.m. I wake up at 3.50 a.m. in the morning, work a, walk an hour to work in the freezing cold. And I would get there and work till 2 p.m. Then I'll be, you know, off for the day. But then the cycle would begin again. OK, already there was a lot of pressure on me. You know, and I had all this to do. And so I wanted to be a rapper. I wanted to be free. I wanted to make music. That's all I cared about. Music was my community. Music was the way I would achieve that idea of having love. You know, I had a girlfriend, you know, she's still with me to this day. Uh, we've been together a long time who I loved more than anything in the world. And I'll, you know, since I was young, man, since we were in high school, I met her when she was 16. I was like, what, 17? Uh, we're only a year apart, actually nine months apart. And, uh, I would tell her like, man, we're going to have so much money, you know, when I make it, all this stuff like I would tell her all my dreams and aspirations and she would believe it and pump me up and make me feel good about it you know and I felt like a tug also just just to not let her down you know and so everything's riding on this dream everything's riding on this idea you know I can fulfill myself I can have these people love me and I can touch these people I can change this life and start to change this generation and it would be consistent of people like me who loved me and it would be a different world a happier world and all this evil was popping off at the time you all remember 2015 2016 all this police brutality Trayvon Martin now all this stuff is going crazy you know and I wanted to change it and I was determined to change it but there was a caveat well not a caveat there was a wall something was stopping me and this is something that you may realize as a real obstacle in achieving your dreams there was a general lack of resources there was a general lack of resources there was no people of expertise or even friends or family there was no personnel behind this dream no personnel behind his vision and i didn't know how to get personnel behind it just my friends my family they would always just tell me man just go to college just Get your education. Just do something with your life that's not rap. Do something with your life. You know, people didn't understand. And so I had no one backing up this vision, backing up this dream. That general lack of resources, you know, transmutes to lack of resources in other areas. Because I don't have people backing this dream or funding this dream. I don't have the money to, let's say, pay for studio equipment. I don't have the money to pay for studio time. Have you ever felt like stuck in a rut because you don't have money to f- fund your dream? And so what do you do? You go to work. And I was working every day. And guess what? One, I wasn't getting enough money from that job to actually f- you know, fund this dream and fund my freaking relationship. Okay? And two, because of the job, working five, six hours, you know, six, six days a week, you know, more than 40 hours a week. I didn't have time to develop the skills to make this dream come true. I didn't have time to work on my dreams. And that's one of the walls that a lot of dreamers run into. A lot of visionaries run into. A lot of people get stuck in a rut because they don't have the time. They don't have the money. They don't have the personnel. They don't have the manpower. It, it is a sick cycle that 
bogs down and destroys the people who will ultimately end up shaping this world or should have ultimately end up shaping this world. And I don't want anybody to fall in that cycle and feel cramped in like I did. And so this is this first series of videos, like I said, is, is, is toned to solving that problem. OK, so here, 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 here's the trouble. I'm caught in a cycle of going to school and going to work and going to school and going to work. And everybody's loving me for it, but I'm hating myself I'm hating every part of myself. Sidebar, that's something that a lot of people like us run into. You know, society acts absolutely abhors you when you go after what you love. They hate you to the core, but they love you when you do what is their vision of how you should live your life. And this is a little, this is the thing about that. There's a version of you that exists in every other per- people's mind, person's mind. You know what I'm saying? A version of you that loves the place they work, a version of you that loves the place they live, a version of you that's happy when those people in their mind, they're not you at all. That's just what people think you are, their perception of you. And when you have so many people live, uh, you know, so many versions of you living in other people's heads, it turns into a situation of dissonance. Because when when people go on to, and I'm going to turn on the car just to get a little battery. My phone's dying. I got 8%. You know, those versions of your of you living in their head, the problem with it is, you know, you have to protect that identity. My apologies, cut, car cut on and stopped the recording. But what I was saying was you have to protect that identity and it results in stress on your life. Here, here's an example of what I mean. Let's say my father thinks I work at Target because this is a situation that happened to me. And I actually quit Target. You know, if I feel a suspicion that he is realizing that that identity that he holds in his head of me isn't real... Stress will result in my life. I feel like he's going to discover who I'm actually who I actually am embracing for the change in his emotion towards me. I feel anxiety. I feel fear. Okay, and so these people around me, they think I like they they think I'm going to go to school. They think I'm a school going kid, a job working kid or whatever. And it's causing stress, depression and anxiety in my life. Because I have to maintain that image that other people see of me. No one at this point knew of the, you know, the visionary stuff and all, all this cuckoo nonsense, okay? Which contributed more to, like I said, to the feeling of loneliness. So trapped in this cycle of not having enough to accomplish the dream that was, you know, at hand, the vision that I had at hand, you know, I fell into a deep, dark spell of really just, you know, uh, it was the deepest of depressions I've ever felt. Every day I woke up, it felt numb. It felt jarring. It felt gray and, you know, just completely just, just, just warped and washed out, you know, colorless. I remember feeling like that. I remember feeling, you know, a crushing fatigue every moment I woke, like just to move each limb felt like, you know, you're moving at the bottom in the darkness of the ocean. Like it, it was a difficult trap. It was an ensnarement. And this was life every day. Unable to reach my dreams for this reason. And unable to relate with anybody around me about these things that I was feeling. Because of the identity of me that society had held. And so I had reclused. You know, these were very hard times for me. 
uh, I felt, you know, you can find pictures on, you know, sometime on social media if I post them. My face was very sucked in. I felt at the lowest weight of my life. You know, my relationship was, I mean, my relationship has always been beautiful. It always will be beautiful. But it was a more difficult time for me maneuvering. I mean, it wasn't like crazy, but it was a more difficult time for me. Okay. Now, uh, that's, that's not really saying much because, like I say, it was beautiful, but it was difficult, especially having this girl alongside me that I promised the world that meant everything to me. And not only did I want this love for me, I wanted this attention for me. I craved to be seen, but I craved to give a life to her that would help her even love me better. I wanted it all for myself. I can't lie. I wanted, I wanted, I wanted it so bad. I held onto it and cling to that identity so bad. That idea that someday people will see and love me and, and, and I don't know. And it, things would just be so different. That's what I believed in. That was my mantra. That's what kept me going every single day. That's what kept me going when I woke up 3.50 a.m. in the morning and had to wake, woke, wake, walk to that wretched job and I was walking, it was October at this point in time, and I'm listening to the Sylvia demo by Isaiah Rashad, Heavenly Father, and I'm bawling my eyes out. To five to four a.m. in the morning in the middle of winter, walking through these dark neighborhoods. Life was life was nothingness. And if you are if you, if you're somebody that sees things, you have a vision beyond what the current model of the world is, you know exactly what I mean. You felt this before because the wall in front of you for sale is so insurmountable. You know? Um, because of that situation that I was in, in this entire time, I'm just, you know, I wrote over 2,000 raps in my phone, you know, but I didn't have a way to record them. I didn't have a studio or anything. But throughout time, I'm just trying everything. I'm trying to save a little money up to buy studio equipment here, save money up to buy whatever you know what just trying to work it out in in whatever way so little little by little the studio and everything was coming together but i was just getting nowhere and i was really getting no results and i didn't really have any time to even you know put my dreams into work and so you know the depression that fell on me was unlike any it tore me to pieces you know i would literally in 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 the embarrassment of the situation because i'm not only you know uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm crushed under the weight. Okay. That's, that's, that's all I have to say. So what results from that situation is what I should probably proceed to. What results from that situation is me getting kicked out of college with a zero GPA because I completely fell into, you know, to a depression and was unable to perform. I just refused to go any longer because if, if I had pushed it any further, I would give more than I had left. I was completely burnt out. And so I wasn't going to school and you know, I was still going to work. Okay. But long story short, eventually, you know, the situation, uh, at work had become too burdensome either. Like I'm on a downward spiral of emotions because I have so much in me, so much vision, so much life, so much vert, you know, fertility, or if that's the word. And I have this wall blocking me. I have this enemy, this insurmountable force. Society itself is trying to cannibalize me, trying to crush me to pieces. And so, you know, uh, you know, going on this downward spiral, I become, this was a period of my life that was, that was not only depression, but the depression expressed itself in social settings as a deep maroon anger. I was enraged most of the time. 
a lot of a lot of my experience with friends and family and relationship was was through the lens of rage, through the lens of irritation. And most people live this way forever. If you go out in public right now and someone is sitting behind you right now at a red light and you sit there for one second too long, they are beeping that horn. They're smashing that horn because they live in through a lens of rage. They live in through the lens of irritation. That's why the divorce rate, that's why so much illness and divorce is rampant in society in my, po- in, my, in my point of view. Because most people, they live a lifestyle that drains them to the point. Like when you have a vision and you're blocked by this wall, it drains you mentally because you de- dedicate so much resources to getting beyond it and you can't. It drains them to the point that when they come home at night, they don't even have enough energy left to facilitate happiness. Facilitate joy to their kids, to their families. You understand what I mean? And that was kind of the situation, you know, in my then opinion of my youth. The disconnected was caused, disconnection was caused by the weariness of the minds around me. You see what I'm saying? And so you've probably, you know, long story short, man, that downward spiral resulted in December 1st. Uh, I almost got into a fight with a manager of mine, an assistant manager of mine, and I stormed out of that job in the middle of the rain, and I never came back. That job was something that plagued me for so long. I remember the summer times, I would look out of the window of the Royal Farms, and people would be coming in in their swim trunks and tan with their sunglasses on, and they would be so happy. They would buy snacks out, and they would just go back into the summer. And I watched summer behind that glass window and I watched the sun rise behind the elementary or middle school across the street. And when school got out, the kids would come in ready to go home. And when the sun set, I would see the lightning bugs down the street and the emptiness and some cars would come through. And you know that how when deep summer just sets in, it's quiet and it's crickets. And I was behind a glass cementing like freaking fried chicken and cooking and mopping floors and not living my dream and not being free and stuck in this box, not being recognized, being seen as little as dirt. People will come to the register and put the money on the counter and there would be no love in the exchange. There would be no recognition in the exchange. And I, that, that built up to experience where I just walked out. It was December 1st of 2016 and I never went back. I went out in the pouring rain and went to the pizza hut or the, the, the season's pizza across the, uh, the, the street called my girlfriend and I walked home in the pouring rain that day and I said look I'm never going back I didn't tell my parents or anything because like I said I didn't feel like we had that connection where I could you know tell them something like this without a repercussion this you know when they did discover it all resulted in a situation where it was just embarrassing people you know it was a pressure like you need to go to school man you need to work you need to grow up you need to get out of this house. You, you can't just live off us for the rest of your life. I was 19 and I felt that way. I tried to figure out the solution to my problems in leaving that place. I didn't have the time, money or resources. And I was like, okay, I'll learn how to make the money. I'll learn how to get the personnel if I just have the time to do so. And so I left that Royal Farms and I stayed home. This was 2016 and it stretched on to, to September 2017. But I was... uh. I didn't have a job and everybody would wake up in the morning and my little brothers, you know, my two older brothers were gone at this point. You know, my oldest, you know, uh, I believe he was in prison now and he's in prison to this day and he'll be in there to 2030 because, you know, things happen. Uh, my other brother was gone off to college, you know, well on his way. He's a naval officer now. So congratulations to him. But 
I don't know what that squeaking is, but I was there with my younger brothers, okay? And even they had something to do in the morning. They would wake up and go to school in the morning. My parents would wake up and go to work every morning and the house would be empty. And I used that time when the house was empty to feel guilty for the fact that I wasn't working. I felt like a leech. I felt like a mooch. I felt like like meaningless. Like I didn't deserve anything because I didn't contribute anything. And this feeling was something that you know, ate away at me and I was only susceptible to it because once again, the prior situation of not feeling connection, not feeling bond, not feeling and, and feeling depression and all these things from the wall that was blocking me with this vision that I had. And so they would all leave in the morning. I would be sitting there doing nothing, you know, and it was cool at first. But after a while, it, it, there became venom to the situation. You know, uh, I remember a text I got who said, when do we realize everybody's just waiting for you to grow up? You know, uh, my brother, I don't know if he minds me saying this, called me a, a you know, you, you bent your bum, you know, straight to your face. I've been called leech. I've been called parasite. You know, all these different things that only further emphasize the way that I was already feeling. I got lower and lower and lower and lower and completely, you know, I, I felt less than dirt. I felt less than dirt. I felt so undeserving of life. And because of the vitriol and the venom and the disconnection and all these emotions surrounding me, like we all will go through, you've experienced this if you have these ideas that are different. You've experienced this. You felt this. So I became reclusive. And uh, it's something I'm living with to this day, but I would literally stay in my room all day in the dark. And I wouldn't even go out to eat. And I felt like such a leech. I didn't want anybody to know that I actually had to eat and ate and stuff like that. And so when my parents would go out, I would run downstairs real quick and sneak a meal, sneak something to eat and run back up to my room. You know what I mean? When they would go out to work in the morning, I would use that time, eat something, bring something up to my room to save for later. And I would stay in the dark, bring a couple water bottles up so I can survive. Because I didn't want to see anybody's face because I, I just felt like. You know, and most of it was, you know, self, self-deprecation. I just felt less than everything in the world. I felt those words. I felt like I was a parasite. I felt confused and bitter. I didn't have a way. And my mind every day was spinning. My tires were spinning on just rap, 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 rap. Make it to the big stage. Make it to the big stage. All these visions and the years are flipping by like a flip book now. And all these visions in my mind of being somebody just melted away day by day by day by day. But they were only things that kept me going. The studio is being built at this point simultaneously. But now I'm releasing songs on SoundCloud that sound awful and they get 20 views at maximum. And, you know, the machine that I'm building is just going far too slow because there's not enough time. I have all the time in the world now. But I don't have money. I don't have people backing me. I don't have a way. I'm in the darkness. And I don't know what to do. And so. Because I would lock myself in a room all day. Uh, it felt like. Every day was the same day. It was the middle of winter. You know from some of the times that I remember. And it would sunset would set super early. And I would just sit there. In the head, because I didn't have any water. I would sit in a room. When I didn't have water. And when I wouldn't come out to eat. And my head would feel like someone was drilling a saw through the side of it. My migraines were so bad some days from not eating. Just because I didn't want to see anyone. 
they would call me sometimes and I would pretend that I was asleep. I would leave out, you know, when I went to see my girlfriend at 8 a.m. in the morning so no one would have to see my face and I would come home at 2, p- 2 a.m. at night so I wouldn't have to talk to anybody, explain to somebody, everybody why I was so useless and why I was so stuck and how I had these visions and these dreams and couldn't figure it out. I started experimenting with online business and even before I had recluse completely in my room, I was saying everybody, okay, this online business thing is amazing. It's going to help me reach my dreams and, you know, we're all going to be millionaires and people started to make fun of me, you know, it's like, how's that business thing going? Jokes like that, you know, and, and so, like I said, every day just became like a hole, like a black hole uh, in that darkness and here was the situation. I would, I would, um, look at videos because freedom was the thing that mattered to me the most. I imagine when I hit my dream, when I finally was a rapper, when I had all these fans, when I had all this love, I would also have all this freedom supplied by the, the funds of this dream. And so I would watch like videos like Hodge Twins videos and, you know, I would watch their videos particularly to see like I would watch their travel videos when they went to London, when they went to, you know, when they're riding in a car in Virginia, when they're out in L.A., and I would want to be the in like in the hotels that they were in, free in LA, seeing palm trees for the first time, and just I would want it to be there. I would listen to the sounds in the video of the background. I would listen to the sounds, you know. I, I would I would I would look at the sun, the way it fell on them, and you know when they walked, I would just try to hear the birds chirping and things like that. I tried to do you know. When it was the middle of winter, I would listen to their videos that were in the summer. They had this video when they went to Wendy's. You can still find it. It's still online. And I listened to the crickets in the background and listened to the, you know, the warmth and the windows being down. And I just wished that I was there and free and rich and loved so bad. I didn't know who I was. I watch RSD. I love their YouTube channel to this day. I will always. I look at the locations that they were and see the beautiful things. And I watch these videos so much. The eye strain would be accompanied by the migraine. You know, it was like, you know, especially that L.A. video that Harshman said, I wanted to be in L.A. so bad. I wanted to be somewhere warm so bad. I wanted to be somewhere summer so bad. And that was my experience for a while. And. So I was trying again and again and again and again with different online businesses as well as working with the music. Just try to try to get enough money with the time that I had to focus on music. That was the that was that was the idea that I had formulated. Let's get enough money to focus on the music. Because you see it all the time. These rappers, they maybe deal drugs or they work a job so they could fund their music career. So that was the idea at that time, particularly. One way or another, I was going to get there. I would tell my coworkers when I had coworkers before I quit, look, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to win Grammy, a Grammy next year. That's how my visions work. I say, I'm going to do it next year. I say the most drastic thing because I believe in it, because I feel it. And so in the situation, uh, there's a lot going on in my relationship. There's a lot going on in my friendships. And I can't help either of these people. And a lot of turmoil is becoming of it because I don't have money to do anything and when I go out people will spend money on me you know I'm going to be completely clear on this podcast you know I owe a lot to my girlfriend you know I say I stressed her out a lot you know because when we go out on the dates and this is something that hurt me to the you know to this very day when I think about it she would always have to swipe her card because she was working a job she had it all together and I didn't I was I was a I was a, a weight a burden to her more than anybody else you know and that 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 hurt 
I felt emasculated. I felt like I didn't have any. This person that I promised the world to, I was taking it from. Everybody I was taking from. And so there's a swirl of opinions. There's a swirl of criticism. There's a swirl of punishment, you know, implemented on myself and from other people in the constant idea of go to work, get a job, go to work, get a job, just go to school, go, just go to school, just do something. You know, I cracked in September of 2017. I went back to work. I just had to have money. I felt like I had enough experience from the business that I was doing that I've had money that I would be able to make it work. And I actually went back to work because my girlfriend, she just needed help. She was going through so much on her own, so many family situations that I can't even tap into because I haven't asked her permission. But she was getting crushed and I had to do something. And so I just bit the bullet. I'm like, man, I got to walk through the flames. I have to do it for her. I went back for work to work. And I remember I went back to work. uh, I'm not going to, you know, give any details after a really big situation that just left me sitting in the car in the driveway, just literally on the verge of just crying and just. I don't even know. Like, it broke my heart. It was a situation that broke my heart. And so I went back to work. And to make a long story short, I was working at Target on the night shift, trying to make get enough money to make the business work. I I would wake up at 3.30 a.m. in the morning, come in at 4 a.m., work the night shift to 9 a.m., and I would leave out. And that's all I pretty much did. And that lasted uh, for about two years, up until just about current times. And, um... Throughout, you know, at first when I got the job again, every, you know, the storm, the blizzard that was forming around me had just completely stopped. It was, uh, it was a complete standstill and, uh, everybody was okay again. They were like, okay, you're doing something. You're not being a leech. You know, uh, you're helping out. You're doing something for yourself. You're advancing in life. But as the years had gone on, the pressure had begun to grow or grow again. The dissatisfaction had begun to grow again. It was like, man, when are you going to go to school? Because you need to go to school. You need a regular career. Stop with all this. You know, at the time I was building funnels for my business, building online businesses and trying to make the music thing work. And it was like, you know, stop with all that nonsense. Just go to school. That was the idea. Um, And then I started ghostwriting. And um, I started making a little bit of money from ghostwriting. Not a lot, but a little bit of money on the side. And uh, I started thinking of a ghostwriting business. And I remember the summer of 2019, uh, I had actually got a, a pretty sizable sale at ghostwriting business. And uh, subsequently, alongside that time, my girlfriend, she was getting some success because she wants to be an actress. You know, and so she had gotten to this feature film uh, that was being filmed in D.C. I'm not going to give the name of it because I don't really want to. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about some people there and some of the situations that was going on. And I don't want to you know, make things weird for them. And so we were filming this feature film in DC while I was working at Target. This was the second year I was working at Target on the night shift. And uh, there was pressure from my family to kind of like go back to school. But it wasn't yet serious. Okay. And then I remember during the filming of this movie, you know, my father had come to me one day because I was going out, I was coming back at 2am at night. And they didn't like what I was doing. And they said, okay, I'm going to give you an ultimatum. And I kind of laughed it off. Like, yeah, hey, whatever. He's going to give me an ultimatum. And I just went, went about my day. But um, the filming of the movie itself was surreal. Okay. And this plays a, a huge role in what I'm about to say next. But the filming of this movie itself was, was, was unlike anything else. So we're 
literally in the city of DC and moving to different rural areas, different hood areas and filming outside with this camera and this crew. And it's pretty amazing, you know, and, uh, it's crazy because some of the people on set, you know, maybe the voice guy or the camera guy, they, they were making all right money from something that they loved. That's all they were doing with their life. You know, the makeup people, like these people didn't have like regular jobs. A lot of these people were like independent contractors on the scene, living out their dreams right in front of me. And so I'm working this job and, you know, sometimes the filming ends at 4 a.m. in the morning when the sun's coming up and I would have to get the job by 5, 5 a.m. in the morning. Okay, and I'll go to the job and then I would go to sleep in the daytime and we'd be back on set the next day and they would be filming and my girlfriend was getting paid to be in this movie and just, just, just do what she wanted to do and the hair people were getting paid and we were going, like, it was insane, like, you know, being out and, you know, because, you know, when I lived at home, you know, uh, there was a summer where I was going out to 2 a.m., but beyond that, they said, come back at 12 every day. But the, when, the, when the film was going on, I was staying out to, to sunrise. Sometimes they filmed, I remember they filmed in this alleyway, um, a scene where it was like a, like a getaway um, driving scene, and they're getting shot at and stuff like that. And we filmed all the way to the sun came up, and it was beautiful. Like, it was freeing. Like, we're in the middle of summer, and those things that I was watching in the video was the lives that these people were living. People were coming up from Georgia, sound guys, people were from the local area, and uh, the videographers, I don't know where they were from, but they were they were literally getting paid to just stand outside in the middle of the summer and do what they love. And it inspired me beyond it because, remember, as someone with a vision, someone who wanted to rap, someone to make music, someone who wanted to be like them, this is exactly what I want. And to see it in person, you know, I was working at this Target completely burned out, but that just zapped my battery back online. It was possible again. Okay. It was possible again. Here's a little sidebar, by the way. When I was working at that Target for the first year, because this would happen in the second year, but for that first year, what would happen was, you know, I was kind of broke down. Like my spirit was broken. But as the months had gone on in that first year, it kind of began to reform a little bit. And we would be, because you know, I'm working the night shift at Target, I would be on something called the line, which the line is a little conveyor belt, like a, a shipment truck comes in every day and boxes come from that truck and it goes on the conveyor belt. We put it on the carts and we push it on the floor. It's a long process. I can't really explain it all and can explain it well, but that's the best I can explain it. And so we were standing on this line and putting boxes onto these, onto these carts pretty much from 4 a.m. to 9 a.m. And, you know, when I started to recover from everything I had gone through, even though I wasn't completely dreaming, freedom was still on my mind. Rapping was still on my mind. How could it ever go? If you're a tireless visionary, that vision remains. And so from 4 a.m. to 5 a.m., sometimes it was spring because I worked there for two years. And when it was spring, they would open up like the garage door where the vendors would come through on the side. It was this little narrow door. And, you know, I would sometimes watch like the sun rise through that little narrow door. And like I would imagine like walking out into the spring but I couldn't because obviously because I was a slave and I was at work, which workers were just slaving away just uselessly. And I would imagine walking through that door and walking into the spring and just leaving and being free forever. And I would talk to my, you know, my middle school friend worked there. Uh, his name was Nate. And I would say, Nate, there are no berries in front of this door. We don't have to work. You know what I'm saying? We could, we could, I was, you know, same way I had left the Royal Farms early. Basically, I was just desiring to leave that place the same way. Just walk out. Just do it. Work on rap again. But I was scared of everything that happened before. And so I would look out this window over at the school across the street and the grass was so beautiful and green. And I would just see the sunrise every single day and want to walk through that door so badly. 
While I was at work, though, you know, a lot of the things that I would do, like a lot of the business ideas that I was building had come to a halt because I was kind of broken and bruised. I was still learning and I would, you know, they didn't let us listen to headphones on the shift. And, but I would dodge between the aisles listening to like the Marketing Secrets podcast by Russell Brunson. I would learn about business because I'm trying to formulate a plan of how I'm going to escape this place once again someday. Maybe not now, but someday. And I was listening to Frank Kern, who was another marketer, another business person that run a business podcast and talked about how to build businesses. And I listened to how 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 we built this or something by Guy Raz. I would listen to all these Ty Lopez podcasts. I would listen to all these people. And these people were just like me, just like the people on the set, people with ideas that made it were on the side of, other side of things. And so they were just ideas. But when we started filming this movie, these people were right in front of my face. These people were right in front of my face. And so particularly during that point in time, this was like July, uh, going into August of 2019, uh, since I was on the set and since I loved it, like we would stay out those 4 a.m. mornings and I would just call out of work. I would call out of work probably like, probably like 10 different times, like, you know, but sometimes you call out of work twice in a row or three times in a row. I'm like, man, I don't care anymore. I'm being free today. And I would talk when I got to work, you know, because they never fired us was a lot of people called out and a lot of people just didn't show up. And some nights I didn't call and or I call and no one would answer and I would just not show up. And but, you know, the, I would talk to the people in the shift and I would say, you know, I'm, I really want to leave this place. And when I do, I'm going to walk through that garage door straight into that beautiful spring. And I would tell them this every day. And um, so there's two things going on. I'm working and I'm hating work every day. It's burning and killing my spirit, just like Royal Farms had the wall of not having time to do what I want to do is, is, is burdening me. I have this vision, but there's a wall in front of me. I don't have the money because this job is paying me $12 an hour. I don't have the time. I don't have the personnel. And so I'm thinking about walking again. And these people are in my headphones are talking me up. They're giving me all this knowledge, giving me all this information, giving me the blueprint to do so. And these people are right in front of my face. as prime evidence that it's possible. And, um, so my track record work became pretty bad and my, my managers were hell. They were on my ass every day. And, you know, it was a pretty, pretty, pretty rough of a situation. Um, I don't know if I can say that, but whatever. Uh, I would just blank it out if, if, if Apple has a problem with it. But, uh, you know, um, I started to believe. I started to believe. And then filming work was coming to close. And the last day of filming on August 26th of 2019, we're at 5th and V in Washington, D.C. We're out at 2 a.m. at night, and most of the other you know, members of the film crew were no longer part of the film because this were the last scenes. We didn't really need anybody. We had a camera, and eight, it was like about eight of us out, 2 a.m. at night in the city. And we're just finishing the last scene, the very last scene. And a guy in a white T-shirt comes across the street and asks for a cigarette. I'm watching this from a little bit of a distance. My girlfriend and, you know, six other people are over there. And me and this guy named Dizzy are standing, you know, by the, you know, a little bit. We had a U-Haul out there at the time. Standing on the street by the U-Haul. It's the middle of summertime. It's, it's, it's late. It's 2 a.m. at night. And then he walks back across the street. And then we see him coming back over. And something, you know, was kind of awry about the situation in my head. I'm like, what is this guy doing? And he posts next to my girlfriend. And he pulls out. He reaches in his back pocket and he pulls out a pistol. And he waves it in her face and he waves it in everyone's face. He pulled out the pistol and he held it. He said, everybody get, get on the ground. Everybody get on the ground. 
it all happened in slow motion. My first inclination was to walk forward. I, I couldn't let him do that to my girlfriend. And so I took a few steps forward and she said, Dallas, get on the ground. And so I laid down and he stood over us. He walked around slowly, just looking at us, patted every, patting everybody down, holding the pistol to the back of people's heads. And he walked over to me, he pat me down. He held the pistol to the back of my head. And all I could think about was my girlfriend over there. And you know what's more than that? If I didn't surpass this wall, if I couldn't find a way to be what I wanted to be, there was no way I would be able to take her out of situations like this. Because we would always live in poverty in neighborhoods where things like this happened. All I could think, man, everything just slowed down. I could feel death hovering above me. I could have had my brains shattered on the ground at 22 years old there in the middle of D.C., he held the gun in the back of my head. He patted me down. And then he walked away. He said, y'all get out of here. We didn't have any money on us. She burst into tears and we ran to the car and we left. And for the, you know, we left the scene. And, you know, for the few days following, like, everything, everything just seemed like a gun. People would walk behind me. I would be paranoid. I'd be sweating. And, you know, because of that. I just decided, man, that was the moment. It was a blessing to me that I decided that, you know, no matter what, this wall that was in front of me, I would have to find a way to surmount it. I would have to break through. I would have to be somebody. I would have to be something. I ought to be. I owe it to her. I owe it to myself. I owe it to my family because this life is brief and it could have been gone in a flash. And if you died there and had your brain splattered in front of her on the cement, it would have meant nothing. Your life would have meant nothing to anybody. No one would have remembered you. No one would have loved you. No one would have said anything about you. It would have meant nothing. It would have been a waste. It would have been a complete waste. And that would have been your legacy. You couldn't do anything to protect her. Because you were caught in the issue of, oh, should I leave work? And so having that in mind, I went back to work and I took a one month leave of absence with the idea that I knew in my mind that I was never going to come back. I just knew it. I was done. I couldn't do this anymore. I had to beat this this wall in front of me. I had to get by it. And I know a lot of you people, a lot of people with visions, a lot of people with ideas feel this way. You have to get past this wall. That's all I could think. And if life was this brief, if life was this treacherous, if life was this quick and fleeting, it would have to be now. And so I walked and I shook my hands all you know the people I loved and met at that place. And I looked at that garage door that I set out walk out of and I walked out into the middle of summer and it felt like as I was passing through the threshold a part of my soul a part of my being was transmuting into something entirely different and I walked home and uh I remember telling my parents about and my family in general about the situation with the armed robbery and um you know they didn't really react in a way that I would have liked you know, it was kind of like, okay, whatever, you know, and, um, that same day, now notice, you know, this is how the story builds, you know, I already feel a lack of 
love, a lack of understanding, a lack of empathy, a lack of recognition of who I was and all the things that I felt inside. I felt alone. But the day that I had left my job or decided to leave my job, I didn't tell them because I knew what it would bring. You know, my father comes to me and said, here's your, here's your, you know, here's your ultimatum. You're either going to go to college or you're going to pay rent. So take note, all the money that I have now for my job, which is, you know, maybe $300, 200 something like that. Uh, it had to go to ads for my business. It had to go to paying for my dreams with all this knowledge. I felt like I could make something out of that $300. But I didn't. I couldn't have it. He said, "Hey, you're going to pay for ads. I mean, you, you say you, you say you're going to use this money four hundred dollars, five hundred dollars, and you're either going to go to college or you're going to pay rent. And so the wall was reinforced. And to me, it struck me as a situation where there was no love, there was no empathy, there was no compassion. It, in in my most vulnerable moment, I feel like it was, it was, or I felt like rather that it was just." It pushed on a scar. It pushed. It it rubbed in my face everything that I had been feeling all along. And so, I had a month to get the rent. And I had decided in my mind, unbeknownst to everybody around me, that I was not going to pay that rent. If it had come, if it would come down to it, I would be homeless in the middle of the freezing winter in Maryland. I had to beat this wall on my own terms. I had to go through anybody and any obstacle. And so this led to me, if you fast forward it a little bit, leaving my house, you know, with nowhere to go after getting yelled at when I didn't have that rent and fleeing across the country to Los Angeles with no money, with no job with no real plan but with a dream but with a vision but with a wall that had to be surmounted with an obstacle that had to be crushed with a feeling that could not be refused and so well that's part one of the podcast um Part two is going to be all about, you know, what is the plan that I formulated, you know, through some of the experiences of progressing towards moving to L.A. And when I got there, how is this wall that was in front of me surmounted? Because here's the deal. A lot of us, like I said, are visionaries, are dreamers. And there's a wall in front of us, whether that wall be for you, family, whether it be a lack of time, whether it be a lack of money. There's a wall in front of you and you're unable to surmount that wall and therefore unable to make the impact that you want in your personal life and the impact that you see for society. You're stuck and you don't know how to get out. And so the next part of this podcast, part two, which should be released uh, tomorrow, um, will detail how it is that that wall is surmounted, how it is if you have a burning vision, you can go and start to implement it into the world without really needing time, money, effort, or any of those things that you think you need. How everything that, ho- that holds you back at this current moment 
is really just an illusion. Um, I could talk forever, but man, it's been a good one. Uh, my girlfriend is waiting for me right now. But my name is Dallas, man. This is the Grand Designs Podcast. And I appreciate you so much for listening. Um, look out for part two. And uh, if you like this podcast, please rate it. Go on iTunes and rate this podcast. Uh, you can find me on Instagram uh, at Juni Prayer. J-U-N-I-E-P-R-A-Y-E-R. Tell me what you thought about this episode. Tell me if you feel it. Tell me what I could do better. I'd always appreciate the you know the feedback. So uh, without further ado, thanks so much, uh, designers. This is the Grand Design Podcast, and I'll see you in the next episode. Peace out.